Well, spiritual leadership is a vital issue for the church. It would be for the church in any age. Every single age and all the difficulties that people face, they need good leaders. We face seemingly enormous changes hitting the church right now as people are thinking through how how has living in a pandemic age affected the church? Those are great topics. We're trying to think them through right now. Well, one thing we know for sure is that we need strong and godly leadership for the church now, maybe than ever before. The strength of our church life, the impact of our witness, its growth, the way the ministries are going to go forward, the wisdom, all of that sort of depends on spiritual leaders, uh, men who will follow the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, much more than the spirit of the age. Before the Lord had graciously used me to plant Hope Bible Church 23 years ago, he laid it on my heart to make sure that I would be doing the most that I could to build leadership up, to um, be dedicated to leadership development. I remember in the days when I was a young man and I had gone to seminary and I believed I had the call of God on my life, but didn't receive a lot of attention from um, leadership. They weren't as in tune to young men there. I wasn't given the guidance that I needed. It took my involvement in the next two churches in California to finally get that guidance. So when we started this church, I said to myself, I don't want there to be any young men out there that might be called to preach or called to missions or called to some full-time ministry and have aspirations for full-time ministry, but be overlooked as I was overlooked. Young men, and for some ministries, young women need training. They need attention. It's not just that it's helpful for them, it is, but it is helpful and crucial to the church because the future of the church depends on our identifying these young people God is working in and getting them properly trained. So if you're a young person, today's message is going to be particularly for you, but Really, the application goes beyond uh, young people thinking about the ministry. It goes to older people thinking about whether or not they're in the right ministry. It goes to all of us thinking about what is God's call upon our lives. Um, We know not everybody is called by God to be a leader. We don't want everyone to be a leader. We want people to follow their gifts and their callings. And there are different gifts and different callings um, for different members of the body of Christ. But each one of us should want to know more about how has God gifted me? What is God's purpose for the labor and ministry I might do for his kingdom? Right now, if you think about it, there are many things that you could be putting your time into doing. But what does God want you pouring your time into? That's an important question. Whatever it is, that expresses your calling more than anything else. This passage that we come to today, back in the book of Acts, chapter 13, shows a distinct call of God upon the lives of two men who were already leaders in God's church, but the Holy Spirit wanted to use them to open the gospel widely to the Gentile world. And so the Spirit of God moved in that local church in a unique way to set apart these men. The result of this was what we call Paul's first missionary journey. But you know, before there was a missionary journey, there was a ministry call. This is not the call that we read about sometimes in scripture where people are called to salvation. No, 
This is a call to fulfill a ministry or a service for the Lord. Let's learn about it. Let's learn about the call to the ministry and maybe some of the principles that would apply to each of us. We're in Acts chapter 13 this morning in verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 13, just three verses, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, if you've been tracking with us as we've been preaching through the book of Acts, you may remember the background to this text. The time is roughly in the middle to the late 40s AD. Um, the church has been becoming increasingly Gentile as the gospel has been going out from Jerusalem. And the largely Gentile church at Antioch has become a key local church in launching an even greater expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, God is poised to use this local church in a unique way, and we're going to read about that in chapters 13, 14, 15 as we move forward. The church at Antioch was given some really important and key leaders. The text wants us to focus on two of them, Barnabas and Saul, uh, commenting on the important shift that was occurring here in chapter 13. In Dr. MacArthur's commentary, he writes this, chapter 13 marks a turning point in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters have focused on the ministry of Peter. The remaining chapters focus on Paul. Until now, the emphasis has been on the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea. In chapters 13 through 28, it describes the spread of the Gentile church throughout the Roman world. So from this little paragraph, we see illustrated that the Holy Spirit calls some believers to work in his kingdom, and he does it in the context of a local church. Now, to understand and apply the call of God in ministry to our lives, we're going to learn three truths from this passage. Three truths, one from each verse, three verses, and we're going to learn about this call to the ministry, whether it directly is applicable to us or whether just principles, there's something here for us to apply. Okay, three verses and three points. I'll give them to us as we go along. First truth is the call comes in the context of the local church. The call comes in the context of the local church. Look back again at verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. So there's a church there. What does that mean? That means a local church. The, the term church means an assembly of people, and this is the church of Jesus. They're assembling for the purpose of worshiping Jesus and listening to his word. In other words, it's a gathering of the saints of God. You know, 
from your theology and from reading the Bible that there is this entity called the universal church. All of the believers throughout the whole world and even those who have died and gone on to be in rest and be in glory. We sang about that a little this morning. We're all part of one giant universal church. Some of it is seen and visible in the world. Some of it is already um, gone on to be with the Lord. But there's a universal church. But in the world, that church is seen in certain locations. And so when the church assembles in this part, they're called a local church. And when they're over here in this area, they're also called a local church. They're all connected to one another in the universal church but there are many, many local churches in the world today. Well, there were a growing number of local churches in the world back then as well. One of them was this church in Antioch. And Jesus uh, revealed himself in that church as well. They were his body. And um, each church, each local church that is, needs godly leaders. They need teachers to help mature them. So that's why we read next about the prophets and the teachers that were at this local church. It had uh, multiple prophets. It had multiple teachers. We have talked about prophets before. These are men chosen by God to receive direct revelation from God, and they were, they were there in the church in the very beginning, laying the foundation of the church because they were really writing the Bible for us along with the apostles. And uh, to understand more about prophets and their role, you can refer to one of my previous messages when we talked about the prophet Agabus back in Acts chapter 11. This local church also had, besides prophets, they had teachers. Teachers um, transcend the era of the apostles. They're still active in the church these days. Teachers refer to those who would stand up in front of a congregation and would explain the Christian faith to them and how to apply it. They would teach doctrine. Um, They are gifted to do that. In other words, God gave them a gift. God gave them a calling. They realized that. And then in the context of the local church, they would begin teaching others. They also, these teachers are crucial to the development of the church's maturity. How is a church going to grow to maturity without doctrine? And how are they going to learn without teachers? We see the importance of teachers in verses like Ephesians 4 and verse 11, where it says Jesus gave uh, for the church some as apostles and some as prophets They're foundational to the church, and then also some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, we're told the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So some are to be paid, in other words, because of their full-time work at preaching and teaching. Timothy was told as a pastor in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That's what a pastor does in a local congregation. Well, here's the question. How do you know if you are called by God to teach in God's church? Well, actually, it's not too hard to figure out. It's pretty simple. First, you need the passion in order to know the Bible well. How can you teach something if you don't know it? If you don't have a passion to study and read and discover and put truths together in your heart, it's not probable that you have the gift of teaching. But if you have that passion to study, that's kind of the root of it, to study, to learn, to ask questions. I've got to know more and more. Now, we are warned in James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers. Why not? Because there's a stricter judgment for teachers. But To know if someone's going to become a teacher, is going to be called by God to be a teacher, somewhere in there starts 
uh, a young man who's asking a lot of questions and wants to put things together, and they're willing to do the hard work of study. But secondly, here's how you would discover it, too. You would try to gain as many opportunities to teach in the local church as you could. You see that children need teaching, and you say, I volunteer to do that. Or youth need teaching, and you say, I want to do that as well. Or adults, or in a small group. In other words, anything that moves in the local church, you grab it, you say, you know, I want a chance to teach them. And then when you teach, get feedback. Get feedback. You go and pray about it. You give your lesson and you get feedback. You try to improve. You seek God's leading in your life. If there's a growing number of people over time that keep affirming you, you know, you may have the gift of teaching. You know, I learned a lot from you in that lesson today, those kinds of comments. In other words, they, they're learning spiritually from you as you teach. You're doing more than just saying the facts of the Bible. You're really communicating to their spirit and to their soul. Then the chances are that you're gifted as a teacher. If they say, you know, you're hard to follow, or yeah, you, you sound like you got it right, but you didn't have the passion or heart for the things, the spiritual things you were talking about. Or if they say you can't really make the truths plain, you're too complicated. Or they say it seems like you keep missing the point of the text. They say things like that to you, then even if you have a desire to teach, eh, chances are you're not being called by God to teach in God's church. Well, next, Luke lists the names of some of these prophets and teachers. He lists Barnabas. Boy, we have seen his name pop up several times in Acts, haven't we? I had no idea before I did an exposition of Acts just how prominent Barnabas was. I mean, we've encountered him. Um, we've learned that he's from the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean um, Sea. Um, he's called the son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. He's been a great help to the apostles. It seems the apostles trusted him to go to Antioch and to check out the work that was going on there. We read about that in Acts 11.22. This is a guy who takes initiative too. He went off to get Saul and Tarsus and to bring him back to Antioch because he saw what, what the Holy Spirit was doing in Antioch and the importance of that work. And he knew about Saul and his giftedness and he wanted this church to deepen. He's just a very wise man. He's alert. He's a great kind of man to have in a local church, a man of faith, a man of vision. Then we have listed another guy, Simeon, who's called Niger. This is our first encounter with him. Niger is a Latinism meaning black, which means he was probably from Africa and a black man. Some people have identified him with Simon of Cyrene. Remember him who carried the cross of the Lord Jesus, but uh, that identification is not known for sure. Listed next is Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene was in Northern Africa. We don't know anything more about this man. And then there's a man named Manian who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Well, Herod has already been mentioned in Luke's narrative, so um, that's interesting. So the gospel has actually penetrated uh, toward those that are close to Herod. In fact, the way this is worded, it suggests that this guy was actually raised as an adopted brother or at least a close companion of Herod Antipas. Wow, that means the gospel was penetrating into very privileged areas as well. By the way, what strikes me about this list and other commentators is that the leadership of the church at Antioch was quite diverse. Then we have Cyprus, you have Saul up there in Tarsus, you have Africa, you have all this different arrangement of these prophets and these teachers. Antioch indeed was a cosmopolitan center 
And we can see that the church leadership reflected that. And last but not least is Saul from Tarsus. Today, Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. Well, that's all he says. That's all Luke writes about Saul. He doesn't really need to say more about Saul, does he? We know that his name is going to become Paul. He's already been talked about in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He was behind a persecution. He was, he was converted on the road to Damascus. We learned about his early witnessing, about his introduction to the apostles. All of that has already happened in Acts. Um, in fact, the rest of the book of Acts, chapter 13 through 28, as Dr. MacArthur's comment noted, is going to be primarily about Paul and his missionary journeys. Well, this was a beautiful church, a well-led church, a spiritual church, good leadership. And here we see that the call of God to ministry took place in the context of a local church. The local church is where the Spirit of God is primarily working today. It's important to God's design. In fact, as you read throughout the book of Acts, you see the starting and the multiplying of local churches. The gospel spreads geographically. People believe, they're gathered, there's another local church that needs more leadership. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each of those uh, local churches. That's kind of what we have been targeting to do and has been our plan at Hope Bible Church from the beginning as well. I know many of you are newer to Hope Bible Church, but from the beginning, even as our vision statement on our website expresses, it's always been our desire to be a faith venture, to step out in faith and see what God would do to build this church, build a strong local church all by God's grace, because none of us deserves to be working in God's kingdom, to make it a word-driven kind of a church that impacts every believer in the church and creates that body dynamic in it, and then everyone uses their gifts realizes their callings and gets busy with that. In order to do that, we've always wanted to target having a full uh, pastoral staff with uh, paid pastors as well in each of, their, each of the major areas of ministry, the thrusts of ministry. Why? So that they can train the people that are more interested in those areas and gifted in those areas. And then those people that are volunteers can get better training and they can use their ministries. And then the church can grow up and it can impact more churches, and it can be a model for other churches as well. Um, we really do desire to export this kind of a local church to others to realize uh, what the Scriptures teach about a local church. And that's what Gamma is all about. That's why we're connected with other churches and working along with them to impact pastors and other leaders and other congregations so they can see some of these distinctives, the importance of expositional preaching and a doctrinally driven kind of congregation and biblical counseling and a high view of God in worship and all these distinctives we have from uh, focusing on the solas of the Protestant Reformation and just building up each of the local churches. That's what we want to have happen. That comes from these gifted men getting involved and younger men realizing their call in the context of a local church and building that up and fanning the flames of that and discipling them and maturing them. God wants to work through the local church. God wants to work through Hope Bible Church. He wants to activate people to ministry. Yes, he wants their faith to deepen. He wants them to have love for people. It's not just to be a cognitive thing or sort of a superficial thing. Relationships are important to the development of young people as well, but he wants them to realize their calling. Here, 
God is going to help you to realize your calling as well. What does God want you doing in his church? Have you thought about that? Have you prayed about that? Have you tried different things to see how God's giftedness in you might come out, how the Holy Spirit might move you beyond certain boundaries and you discover things that you might not have thought of earlier in your life? I didn't realize my call into the pastoral ministry until some good 12 years, 14 years after I was saved. I'd thought about it. I didn't have the courage to do it. That was one thing holding me back. But there are many things God may be tapping different people on the shoulder about, and they need to realize this is God's call on your life. And you're going to realize it getting busy serving in the context of a local church. Why? Why the local church? Why is it so important? Because in the local church, they see you for who you are. It's kind of hard if you're active in the local church to, to be a phony. It's kind of hard to act a certain way that you're not. If you want to become a teacher, there are going to be a lot of people kind of looking at you who are not teachers and saying, you know, in the past, our teachers didn't act all that crazy like you act. And you have to kind of shore up some areas of your life. Or you may have some attitudes towards things that are not right. Or you may begin teaching and you might sound polished and everything, but you don't have a heart for people and that comes across. You're too harsh and you need some... Uh, you need some sanding. You need, the rough, you need the rough edges kind of smoothed out a little bit. And all of that happens in the context of people that know you in the local church. If you bounce around, you know, people don't know you, then maybe you can get people to agree to, you know, put you in front of a camera, put you in front of a microphone or something like that. But that's not really what God wants to do. He wants to work in you. When a young man wants to teach, he's going to be tempted just go off online somewhere and start your own thing and have no accountability. Don't do that. Get with the people that are criticizing you but love you and say to you, you know, I'm so glad that you want to teach. Here's an opportunity. Here's some feedback. Here's another opportunity. Here's some more feedback. We're trying to keep working on our training tracks here at Hope. We haven't always done the best job on that. A lot of that's my fault, but we're working on it. And we want to make sure that the men who want to teach get instruction, not just on how to order a message, but also how to talk sweetly to our people and love them and be patient with the sheep as well. Do you want accountability? You should. Do you want some evaluation of your life? You should. You'll grow better. You'll be of better service to the church in the long run if you do it that way. If you're truly chosen of God, you'll move forward and you'll want training. You'll want honest feedback. All right? So that's why the local church is so important, and that's why the Holy Spirit uses it in order to bring out the calling of different people. All right, now the second truth, as we go along here, it's in verse two, is the Holy Spirit is the one who actually makes the call. Look at verse two. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, so you see, again, the initiative of God, right? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Wow. Wow. This is all about God's initiatives. Remember when we were discussing the life of Cornelius and we saw that that whole movement of the gospel in the Cornelius and his, and his household was generated by God. God took the initiative. Remember that? Here is God taking the initiative in the planning administration of his church again. This is amazing to me. You know, we leaders, we can come up with our plans. Here's what we think God might do, but really the spirit of God is in charge. I call the Spirit of God the main administrator of the church. 
Why? Because he's the one that doles out the spiritual gifts, the timing of them, the arrangement of how people work together. And here we even see him speaking and calling out people to go and do the ministry he gave them. Well, there are two actions that accentuate the commitment of the human leadership in this church. First, it says they were ministering, and second, that they were fasting. Let's just say something brief about that. They were ministering. This ministering is specified as to the Lord. So that means that it, it involved, part of their ministry was prayers. Do you ever think of your, your prayers, leaders, as a ministry that you offer unto the Lord so that he takes your prayers and he strengthens and deepens the church because you're a praying leader? It probably involved more than prayer. And ministering the word of God is also unto the Lord as well. It feeds God's sheep, so it probably involved that. Secondly, it says they were fasting. That's a clear indication that they stopped eating food. Why? They wanted to intensify their prayers. Listen, they wanted to intensify their focus on seeking God's will for what their church was going to do. Fasting is something that we don't do all the time, but we do it when we really need an answer from the Lord. There's a desperation in it. There's, you're facing a tremendous difficulty. You need, you need a clear direction. And so leaders and other people in the church come together and they fast. They stop eating. They seek the face of God. Like Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. As these men were obedient to God, submitted to his will, and pursuing knowing what God wanted them to do as a congregation, it's in that context that the voice of the Holy Spirit supernaturally came to them. Luke writes, the Holy Spirit said. Now, I kind of wish that <laughs> been explained a little more exactly how the Holy Spirit said, but from the context, the voice of the Holy Spirit probably refers to the prophets. Why? Because they were just mentioned there in the context. One or more of these prophets moved by visions moved by the hearing of the word of God, directly from God, they spoke. And this was clear, and it was infallible direction from the Holy Spirit that came to them. This was prophecy directly from God. You know, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the church universal. He is the head of every single local church as well. But as I said, Jesus works in his church through the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one called alongside to be along with us and to help us. Remember what Jesus said, if I leave you disciples, it's to your advantage for if I go away back into my father's house, I will send the helper and the helper will come to you and it'll be better because he's going to reveal truth to you and he's going to work powerfully in your midst. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in every gospel-preaching local congregation, and he moves and works in there. And as I said, he's the main administrator for the church. He sets the agenda for the church. He distributes the gifts. He motivates the prayers and the service. You know, we're told in the little letter of Jude, verse 20, uh, you, beloved, 
building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, praying of the agenda that the Holy Spirit wants us praying for as the scriptures talk about it. That's how we are to be. The Holy Spirit generates all of that in the local congregation. And the Holy Spirit's wording here indicates that he was speaking with the very authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. He said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. These are my men Set them apart for what I want them to do. This is is God's church. This is Christ's church. It's Christ's Holy Spirit. And now it's Christ's command. And it's Christ's ministry. Set them apart for me. This is what I want them to do. Hey, hey, the church is not supposed to try to get in the way of what God is doing, right? We're supposed to cooperate with what we see the Holy Spirit doing, right? Now listen. We know that God does not always reveal what he wants all of his servants to do specifically. In fact, even prior to this statement, we have to assume that not even this church knew exactly what God wanted them to do. They were gathered, they were ministering, they were praying, they were fasting. Then a point came where God said, you know what, I'm going to reveal it. And God, the Holy Spirit, spoke and he said, I have a calling on Saul's life. I have a calling on Barnabas's life. God has a mission he wanted them to go on. And the Holy Spirit wanted the church to join this mission. He wanted the church leadership and the entire church to get behind the new mission, not resist it. We need a local congregation that's sensitive to the things the Holy Spirit is doing. Well, to the credit of this church, they did get fully behind it. And we see that in the next verse and in the verses to follow. So, One truth we all need to understand is that even though this came with an infallible prophecy, spiritual leaders, even now, are still appointed by God. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who appoints leaders. They don't appoint themselves. You know, I once read of a guy that was, he he said he baptized himself. (laughs) We were interviewing him and like, when did you get baptized? Well, I baptized myself. You're not supposed to baptize yourself. You're supposed to, you know, let the leaders do their thing. But some people want to get into spiritual leadership and they decide that they're going to appoint themselves. They don't need anybody else to evaluate their lives. Why would they? They know they're called of God. Oh, it doesn't work that way. If you really think the Holy Spirit is moving in your life to appoint you as a leader, you will submit to the whole process of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of a church. It's the Holy Spirit who appoints Elders, how do I know that? Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's words to the leaders, to the elders there. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Overseers, pastors, who appointed them? Who made them there? Answer, the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, sometimes leaders don't even want to lead. People that are called to ministries don't want anything to do with it. Do you remember a man in the Bible named Moses? Remember when he was tasked with, uh, this is where I wish the whole congregation was filled with people here so we could have a little laughter or something like that. We've got to get everybody back together again. Remember Moses at the burning bush? By the way, I have heard the cries of my people and I'm sending you to deliver them. And Moses, 
He's like, uh, send my brother Aaron. He's better at talking. He didn't want it. But what happened? The sovereign will of God, the sovereign call of God won out. If you are gifted by God to preach God's word, to be a missionary, to be an elder, pastor, some other form of leadership, to lead among the women, God's going to get a hold of you. God's going to win out. You better cooperate. And the rest of the church needs to identify and see it. To Paul, being a leader, being an apostle was more than a gift. It was a command from God. Um, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 17, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Man, he was obligated. He knew it. Concerning Jesus's expanding earthly ministry. Um, some of John the Baptist's disciples came to him in John 3, 26 and 27, and it records, uh, they said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and everybody's coming to him. In other words, they're leaving you, John, and they're going over to Jesus's camp. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been granted to him from heaven. That's right. God is the one who gives gifts. God is the one who grants ministries. This is true for everyone, guys, not just Paul, not just Apollos or Jesus or John the Baptist or anyone else in leadership. It's true of all of us. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, it says, there are varieties of gifts, gifts of the Spirit, but the same Holy Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. It is the Spirit who distributes gifts to every believer. Consequently, the ministries that go with those gifts are, are given by God. To help you discern your calling, along with the giftedness, God will add to you an inner sense of pressure, a compulsion deep inside of you that you must do something, that you must preach the Word of God or teach it or do some other kind of ministry. It will not be a mild desire. It will grow in intensity over time. It will not diminish with time, but it will escalate. And along with that, God will confirm your giftedness by other people in the local church. There's a guy named Jim George that was at the Master's Seminary for a while, and he wrote a chapter in the book, Rediscovering Pastoral Ministry. And he did it on the call to the ministry, and he created an acronym call, C-A-L-L, -L, that helps a person see the elements of a call from God. The C stands for confirmation. In other words, other people will confirm to you that they see that giftedness in you. The A is for ability. You actually have to have the ability to instruct and instruct well. From Titus 1, it says you have to be able to teach. And then the first L is a longing. That is an inner drive that won't go away. You aspire to the work of the overseer, as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. And then the second L is lifestyle. You will show a maturity in your life over time, the family and personal character qualifications that are listed of leaders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. When a man has all four of these, then he can be assured of his calling to the pastorate. Unfortunately, many a man has ascended to preach in a pulpit week after week, to preach to God's people, but God did not call them to preach. To allow a man like that to continue to preach will end up doing more damage to the body of Christ than good.
In the book called On Being a Pastor, Derek Prime and Alistair Begg wrote this, what could be worse for a church fellowship than to have someone attempting to be a shepherd and teacher without God's call? Great question. It really hurts the church. Later in that book, it explains a little bit more about the process of how that calling happens. And they add these insightful words. The key factor is that it is God, the Holy Spirit, who issues the call. The call comes about through sensitivity to God's dealings with us as we pray, through reading the scriptures, and through listening to the preaching of God's word. And often it is reinforced as we discover how God's call has come to others, both at the present time and in the past. The call usually begins with a desire to care for the spiritual well-being of others and to preach God's word. And where there is a genuine call, the desire to serve in these specific ways will grow and become dominant, end quote. They used to tell us in the master's seminary, in the chapels, and sometimes in the classrooms, if you believe that you can have any other career besides preaching God's word and you would be happy doing it, go do it and do not be a preacher. And they didn't say that because they thought it's bad to be a preacher. They did it because we don't want anybody in the pulpit that doesn't feel compelled to be that kind of person. I think it's the same advice that Charles Spurgeon gave 150 years ago as well. Preaching or missionary activity or other leadership gifts has to be a compulsion and a gift confirmed by others in the local church where you serve. The same is true for other kinds of ministries. All right, now we come to our third and our final point in verse 3 about the calling, and that is this. The call of God is recognized and supported by the whole church. Verse 3. The call of God is recognized and supported by by the whole church. Look at that verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them out. Now the they from the context probably refers to the leaders just mentioned, but you need to understand they were doing it in the context of the whole church and with the approval of the whole church. The whole entire congregation was involved in this identification and this hearing of the voice and the sending out of the missionaries. In fact, there are four actions here that help us to see how the leaders, the leaders of Hope Bible Church or any local church, and everyone in the church can recognize and support God's call upon leaders. First, they were fasting. Again, that shows their commitment to the work of God. There are critical times where the church and church leadership needs to fast. Second, they were praying. We must all be seeking the will of God for the future ministries of Hope Bible Church, for some of the younger people that have been brought to our church, who is God raising up? Uh, Help to fulfill the vision that the Lord gave us, the beginning of this church. We need more workers in that. We need to ask God to provide the workers and the power and all of that. Third, it says they laid on hands. There was the laying on of hands. Probably, again, it was the leaders that actually did this, this, this act of laying hands on the ones they were about to send out, but it was in the presence of the whole congregation in an ordination kind of worship service. And so the will of the people and the witness of the people was behind this. By the way, laying on of hands, and we make this point every time we have one of these services at Hope, laying on of hands does not transfer power. There's no power that comes out of the hands of leaders. It's a symbolic thing. It's a recognition that the leaders and the congregation behind the leaders recognizes the call of God on these people. When we lay hands on a leader in a worship service, 
We don't, in the truest sense, appoint them to ministry. The Holy Spirit does. We simply recognize and support God's appointing of that person. We're publicly agreeing with it, in other words. Um, Timothy was told in 1 Timothy 4, 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The elders, the presbytery were involved in the laying on of hands, but the giftedness comes from God and we're not to neglect that gift. He was not to neglect that gift. Now, obviously, this is not an infallible process. We have laid hands on people here at Hope before that we should not have. We should have had more careful observation and testing before we did that. But in some cases, it becomes clear this person really is called of God, and all we're doing is affirming what God has already done in their life. Of course, in this case, the Holy Spirit spoke infallibly through prophets. Well, the fourth thing thing they did is they sent these two men, Barnabas and Saul, they sent them away. Now, again, sending them away was not getting rid of them. You know, we can't handle Paul and Barnabas, so we're getting rid of them. That's not what sending them away meant. What did it mean? It meant they were supporting them. They were releasing them from their church obligations at Antioch so they could get busy going to another place to do what God wanted them to do. Behind this also was financial support. When you're sending them away, you're giving them the monies the support so they can travel and get the work done. Of course, they were being bathed in prayer. That's part of sending them away. And you need to understand that that when Paul and Barnabas were sent away by the church at Antioch, they realized that. They understood the support of this local church. And when they were done with their first missionary journey, where did they come back to? And the answer is they came back to the church at Antioch. They felt they needed to give a report because this wasn't just their ministry. It was supported by the entire congregation. An example of this in our church would be what we have attempted to do in getting behind uh, Steve Reisman and his family in sending them out to Africa. And um, they are actually scheduled to return to our church. We are their sending church, and that means we are to be greatly involved in their lives, maybe even more so than others that we support because we sent them out. We should be earnestly praying for them, reading their updates when they come home, making sure that they're well cared for during the months that they'll be right back here at Hope Bible Church and uh, giving explanations about their ministry. We want them connecting with many of you and and, uh, getting to know you better. We want all of you involved in helping them. We want to be behind them in the truest sense, and we've done some of that, and we could do a better job with that. Well, though the example in Acts is about the calling of God on leaders, I want you to know, too, any of you, who, whoever you are, that God gives you gifts and gives you opportunities and works inwardly in your life also to help you realize how you can be of value to the church of God, how you can exercise a gift of exhortation, how you can utilize a gift of mercy, a skill set and a giftedness in administration, and many other areas where the church is so needy. We're a growing church. We need you. Maybe that's part of what you can do when you're at home. Realize what is God's giftedness on you. Wrestle with that 
volunteer to be used by God more greatly in the years to come. Parents, here's a challenge to you. Do you have a young man at home that right now, he doesn't seem all that mature, but you might sense that the hand of God is on him, that God is gifted him and has given him spiritual insight. And one day he may be preaching God's word. He may be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. He may be a missionary that's sent out to a needy area of the gospel. Pray with him, pray for him, help him to realize the call of God on his life. To broaden the application out to all of us, as you are pursuing understanding, what does God want me to do with my life? Even if you're a little older, it's not too late to realize it, or at least to fine-tune it, right? I want to tell you four things not to do as we're closing here. We'll close with this. Four things not to do in trying to understand the will of God for your life. These are common mistakes that people make in trying to discover God's will for their lives. Mistake number one, do not invent subjective and unscriptural ways to try to determine the will of God for your life. In other words, impressions that you have in your soul are not God speaking infallibly to you. Any internal feelings that you have must be tested by the word of God. Inner voices are not to be trusted. They can come from your own vanity. They can come from your immaturity. They can come from the suggestion of others. They can even come from Satan. Stick with the scriptures as your guide. God will guide you providentially as you do that. God will have the true desires he put in your heart escalate over time. They will stand the test of time and they will be confirmed objectively by others around you. Number two, do not try to figure out God's will for your life in isolation. Don't sit there and all by yourself try to figure it out. Value the local church. Value talking with older believers who have much more experience than you. Gain more counsel. Don't withdraw from the life of the local church, from the life of the body. Young people especially need to test and retest their thoughts with older believers. And if you don't hear what you want to hear, learn to be submissive, learn to be uh, obedient, and God will bless your life. Number three, do not expect God to lay out his plan for your entire life all at once. Just because you get an insight of what God may want you to begin doing doesn't mean you're going to be doing it when you're 80 years old. For the most part, God does not tell us our future. He does not tell us that because the knowledge is too much for us. It can be what one book on guidance calls toxic knowledge. It can actually be hurtful to us. People who think that God will tell them what they will do with their entire lives might run later into something else that seems like that's a different thing than I was told earlier. And then they think God's contradicting themselves or they think that the first thing that they heard from God was not right. And they're reading way too much into some, some set of circumstances. God's not going to tell us his entire plan for our lives at the beginning of our lives. In the book, Step by Step, which is guidance on how to know uh, the will of God for our lives, uh, the way of wisdom, it says this, since God's knowledge is exhaustive, his plan by which he governs our world is way out of our league, both in sophistication and quantity of information. We could not even understand his processes if he told us the information would damage us. You remember what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And then fourth and last, do not rush things with God. 
Do not rush trying to figure out the will of God. It takes time. It takes the renewing of your mind. It takes growing in wisdom. If you think about it, if there's one way to truly understand the will of God for your life, it's captured in that one word in the Bible used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that is the word wisdom. Wisdom, and with it, all of the discernment that's needed and the insight that's needed. It takes time to develop wisdom in your life. It takes time to do it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talk about the renewing of your mind so you can approve the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The way of wisdom is better than uh, even ways people determine the will of God in the past because the way of wisdom is God so working his word in your mind and in your desires, you yourself become wiser and more Christ-like in your thinking. And from that thinking, you're able to look at yourself and assess yourself well. And now you're able to make decisions about life and about ministry that are wise and have God's priorities with the right motives. And so God works in you that way. So beloved, stay involved in the body of Christ. Rekindle your gifts for God. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit as you listen to scripture. Have others praying for you. Listen to other counselors. Be involved in the whole body of Christ. It's in that context. You'll realize God's call for your life and the rest of the church will also realize and be able to get behind and support God's call on your life. Father, take these truths and drive them deep within us. Oh, Lord God, take your word. Help us apply it. Thank you for the the detail with which we get to peek inside the life of the early church and learn from it. We pray for our young men particularly, that you will work mightily in them, but not just our young men, our young women that are trying to figure out your call on their life as well. And we pray for all of us. We'd be more compliant and sensitive to the teaching of Scripture and its application, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.